BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Today, today is your turn. Yesterday was Robert Mueller's turn. Yesterday was Congress's turn to ask questions of Robert Mueller in front of the Judiciary Committee, in front of the House Intelligence Committee. Yesterday was their turn. Today is your turn. It's processing day. Robert Mueller testified yesterday. What did we learn? What did it remind you of? What should people be paying attention to now? Yeah, we have the question, what impact did it have? We had the question of what should happen next? But not just the horse race, not just the optics, not just the wrestling match, not just commenting like sports announcers, adding color and predictions to some game. But what should we be reminded with respect to the substance of our democracy? Not just the veneer, but the substance. What did it teach us? What did it remind us of? What should it remind us of? My name is Jefferson Smith. This is The Tom Hartman Show. I am honored to sit in. This is your show, and today is your turn. What did we learn? What were we reminded of? But there's another piece that I don't want to agree with, that I do want to quibble with. And that is that somehow this is a failure of the opposition party. This is primarily sits at the feet of Democrats. Well, Democrats let us down or Democrats aren't uh, getting the message out there. And very often that's what people say. Like, what are they, what are Democrats failing to do? And they say, oh, well, they're, they need to uh, guarantee the ballot. They need to make sure that we stop interference on the elections. Well, there are bills. The House can pass these bills. The Republican Senate will not pass these bills. That is not at the feet of the opposition party. That is not at the feet of Nancy Pelosi. That is not at the feet of Chuck Schumer. That is not at the feet of any, par- any portion of the opposition party apparatus. And then the other critique is, well, I wish we would be knowing about these things. I wish they would tell us about these opposition efforts. Why aren't they saying something? I can't tell you how many times I have heard in speeches, in house parties, in town hall meetings, on the radio, in emails, why aren't Democrats standing up? 
And this feeling of people who want to, who've been lifelong Democratic voters, who are resisting now, who are part of the opposition party or at least the opposition movement. We're wondering why aren't Democrats standing up? Why can't we hear them? And I will say that too is not merely at the feet of the opposition party. That is not merely at the feet of elected representatives. Now I have my quibbles. They spend too much of their time raising money. Is that at their feet? Partly, but it's also partly the fact that we have unlimited campaign funds in this country, unlimited campaign budgets in this country, and unlimited secret money contributions allowed by this Supreme Court. And so that's sort of justifiable, or at least almost necessary, it seems necessary, to many members of Congress to spend all that time. So they have some quibbles with how they spend their time. But ultimately, it is not the Democratic National Committee, it is not the Congress who gets to decide what the media is talking about. That is the media apparatus. That's why you who listen to this program are so important. That's why I so appreciate being able to spend this time. That's why what Tom does is so important. That's why what free speech does is so, free speech TV does is so important. So that there is an apparatus to talk about this stuff. So when we are offering our critiques, I would just, my, my own note is that we put our anger, that we put our criticism where it truly belongs and where it best belongs. That's not to say the opposition party bears no criticism, but think about who bears it the most. Let's hear quickly from Pam from Chicago. Pam, you're on the air. Hi, Jefferson, how are you? I am well, it's good to hear your voice. If you would allow me just to say right on to the citizens, the people of Puerto Rico, they got it done. And that's how you get results. There will be no order until you're out of office. So I am so glad that they did what they had to do and they got the result that they wanted for now. Now it's a matter of getting the right administration in there. So I'm, I'm so happy for them. And Pam, thank you for bringing that up. I think you flagged okay. the key issue, which is a little bit like the Arab Spring. Toppling a regime is one thing. Building a system of governance is another. So I think a lot of the important questions are still to come. But it's at least a reminder of the power of the citizenry to have an impact on their government. And that at least should be inspiring for people who are wondering about whether they should get engaged in governance. But anyway, go ahead. Exactly. So quickly, with the Mueller report, for me and those in my circle, we didn't put all our eggs in this basket, but we wanted this hearing because there were some things that were brought out that maybe you really couldn't capture if you read the report or you couldn't read it at all. I loved Adam Schiff. I guess the way he closed, he said Trump is disloyal. He said Trump is wrong, and it is not patriotic to do what he's done. And that's the music that's rapping. As you can finish your thought, and then we're going to break. Sure. And for Mueller, let's have some respect for our elders. I have no problem with the way he purported himself at that hearing. Pam, I appreciate you making that point. Any talk about, well, there was so much of the commentary that basically boiled out of, Mueller looked old. You know what? So it's a huge portion of our population and some of the most wise people in our population. Thank you, Pam. What were some of the takeaways from yesterday? But this is a processing day. This is a chance. Well, yesterday, a bunch of you called. We appreciated those calls. We were able to take a couple few of them, but mostly we're going with the report itself, going with the testimony, the questioning, the hearing itself. Uh, today is your chance to offer your thoughts. And particularly, what did we learn and what were we reminded of? Senator Maisie Hirono was reminded of three things. 
Her comment, three things are clear from Mueller today so far. One, no exoneration. Two, overwhelming evidence of obstruction. Three, the OLC memo prevented Mueller from indicting Trump. She then renewed her call for impeachment. Uh, Seth Kotler, who's a friend of the show, has been on before. Democratic members of Congress today showed they've done their homework. They came equipped with chapter and verse references. The Republicans, on the other hand, did their homework by watching Hannity and Judge Janine. You can also tweet at us at Tom Hartman or at me. I'm Jefferson D. Smith. Let's go straight to your call. Let's go to Shirley, who's been watching on YouTube. Hello, Shirley. Hello. I would like to comment on the format used yesterday. I thought it treated Mr. Mueller very unfairly. Say more. Well, they would ask him a question and tell him where in the report it was. While he was trying to find his place, they'd say, well, we'll just go on to the next question. And then they never considered that each person went to a different section of the report, and he had to regroup each time he yeah. he had a new person talking to him. It was like the debates. I think the debates are totally useless. They're nothing but a shouting match. You can't have a substantial discussion in a minute. And I just think it made him look like he wasn't all there, which I think I'm 80. I couldn't have done what they were trying to make him do. So thank you, Shirley, for calling. From my read, I saw a few different dynamics. One of them was that you mentioned were the time limits, that each of them had very limited time. My quickest reply, one of the biggest challenges they were facing was not just, and I will concede the point, that if what we were looking for yesterday was primarily a reality TV show that was well-produced to dazzle us and pick a new bachelor, yesterday was not scripted to do that. I agree. And for those who thought, oh, the book of the Mueller report isn't enough, we need the movie, I will agree that the movie was not made by Michael Bay, which is one of the reasons I want to ask about substance. I want to hear about substance. But in terms of the format, I had a few format ideas. So, so for one thing, I think a major challenge, not only time limits, five minutes per member, but also that if they had asked an open-ended question of Mueller, mostly all he said, and he, I think the count was 200 times, he answered a question by essentially not offering anything to the question. That he did offer some yeses and nos. That when Nadler was saying it's true that Trump wouldn't testify, right? You really wanted him to testify, right? He was material to the case, right? You had repeatedly asked him, right? And he said, correct, to each of those. That that did move some units, that did work. It was almost like working with a hostile witness in a cross-examination. It was almost like yes or no questions got you answers, but open-ended questions didn't get you much. Open-ended questions just get you, well, I'll refer you to the report. That could be a critique on Mueller. That could also be a critique on the format. Here's a format idea. A format idea that I would have loved to see, but it didn't occur to me until too late, so I don't want to throw too many stones. And also, hat tip to Rachel Maddow, who came up with, I think, essentially identical idea, which is have a panel have the investigators. So when you have a question, they are ready, the person who has the direct information, not just the figurehead, not just the overseer of the investigation, but each of the people who wrote the chapters and verse who are ready to answer chapter and verse. We might still see that. So that's a little bit of it. And I do think it would have been, it would have taken a skillful 
questioner and somebody who is motivated to provide additional information to make that format provide more electricity. But I do still think if we were paying attention, there were some moments that should have given us some electricity. Let's hear from Paul from WCPT in, I think it's Woodenville, Washington. Go ahead, Paul. Well, Robert Mueller responded exactly the way I expected he would. He was even-handed to both sides. A good example of that is he declined to answer about equally in terms of elaborating on various questions to both Republicans and Democrats. He was not there to tilt the board one way or another. Yet, I must say that perhaps both sides, but far more on the Republican side, they were there to try and discredit him, to try and confuse him. I mean, let's look at this. This is 428 pages. Now, for perspective, the book Moby Dick is about the same length. It's over 125,000 words, which, as you pointed out, he did not write all himself. So asking him to refer quickly to this and quickly to that and then say you were inconsistent here and you were inconsistent there is really ridiculous, especially when he's trying to clarify in these short-term questions. But, I mean, if anything, if the Republicans are going to say that Robert Mueller is not credible and the investigation was partisan, let's see what that means. In March, the report came out, and Donald Trump was uh, waving his hands around, I'm exonerated. No obstruction, no collusion. He said, I'm exonerated, yet that creep from Ohio yesterday said, oh, exonerated is not a legal term, and you said collusion's not a legal term. They got all nitpicky like they were trying to get Trump off on a technicality. And so if they're trying to impede or impeach Mueller's credibility, then they just took away their own, you know, what Trump was saying to begin with. You can't, you can't have it both ways. And that's what they tried to do, and tried to make him look like some confused, senile, fuddy-duddy old man by asking him questions. A lot of their questions were alleged facts and interjected circumstances, which were outside the scope. And, Paul, let me interject for a moment. Was there anything, in addition to sort of the theater of the, whether it's Mueller's performance or the performance of the questioners, the performance of the Republicans, anything on the substance that you were reminded of that you had forgotten, either that it happened, that it appeared in the media, or something that was new to you? Anything on the substance that was a takeaway for you? Let's go to the idea in media is to don't bury the lead. Nobody contested the fact that Russia interfered in our 2016 American election, yet what has Donald Trump done about it? Nothing. He has said, not said boo to it, no sanctions, no nothing, yet he threatens Iran with sanctions and military action. He threatens Venezuela with sanctions and military action. What has he threatened with Russia? Nothing. Yet nobody disagrees that Russia interfered. He has not said a thing about it. That's the elephant in the living room. Thank you for that. And something else that occurred to me afterwards. Mueller did come a little more alive in the latter portion, in fact, of the Intelligence Committee hearings talking about Russian interference when he said that it was problematic, when he said that the Russians are at it right now. If I had to do it over again, I would have flipped them. I would have done the Intelligence Committee hearing first and the Judiciary Committee hearing second. In part because very often... When you're interviewing somebody, if you can talk about the stuff that they care about early, it'll bring them more alive. It'll get them more energy. It'll get them engaged with the conversation. That's a production tip as much as anything. 
and I don't want to merely focus on the production of the things. So many of us are becoming, Tom says just about every day, the democracy is not a spectator sport and we're treating, I want to avoid myself falling into the trap of treating this as a spectator activity. But I appreciated your comment about not bearing the lead, that this should not be merely about the current president of the United States. It should not be merely about one person. It should be about the sanctity of our elections, our responsibility to preserve the sanctity of our elections. And that should be something that is a transpartisan issue. That should be a 70%, 80%, 90% support issue. And by the way, pretty much is, but that's not reflected by the actions of Congress, or more specifically, that is not reflected by the actions of the Republicans in Congress, by Mitch McConnell killing any bill that would preserve the sanctity of our elections. That is vastly more important than whether or not Robert Mueller sounded like a 74-year-old or something a little older, something a little younger, whether or not that matters or not. The sanctity of our elections matters vastly more. I'm Jefferson Smith. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. You're listening to Tom Hartman. So even if you have air conditioning in your house, hot summer nights can be kind of tough to sleep. I mean, we got, we're smashing heat waves from Silicon Valley to Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, it can be tough to sleep during a heat wave. It, it, it alters everything, not just the temperature, the humidity and everything. But get this, there's actually a bed that keeps you cool through the whole night, no matter how hot it is outside. It's called the Pod. It's from a company called Eight Sleep, E-I-G-H-T Sleep. And it's the first and only bed with responsive surface technology designed to keep you cool all night long. The Pod is the Tesla of beds. It, the Pod dynamically adjusts each side of the bed to the ideal temperature for your body and for your partners, which science shows can help you sleep deeper, leading to optimal mind and body performance. You'll find that Eight Sleep is a company dedicated to building the most innovative solutions for sleep's biggest problems, and with the pod, they are delivering. You'll never have to suffer through sweaty hot nights ever again. If you're ready to beat the sweat and start optimizing your sleep, head to 8sleep.com Tom. Try the pod for 100 nights, and if you don't love it, they'll refund your purchase and arrange a free pickup. They've already sold out the first two batches. They're going fast. For a limited time, get $150 off your purchase when you go to 8sleep.com slash Tom. That's E-I-G-H-T sleep.com slash T-H-O-M. 8sleep.com slash Tom. Mary from Salamanca. How you doing? I'm doing just fine today. It's beautiful out. And it's quiet, and it doesn't seem has to be a care in the world. I live right next to a Allegheny State Park, but I'm very concerned about the health of our country. Yeah, I listened to Mr. Mueller speaking, and by the way, that shift person, his opening remarks were just music to my ears. Yeah, he was so eloquent, but simple, so that the average person could understand. But I am very deeply concerned about how the interview was conducted. It was like one of those speed dialing jobs. I just think that Mr. Mueller was just overwhelmed. He had to scamper about for the page and the clause and the numbers, and it got me confused because I didn't read it. I can't read things like that because it's just, 
very lengthy, and I don't have the. Yeah, uh, no, it's hard. It's hard to find chapter and verse. One of our other callers said it was. It's about the length of Moby Dick. I don't know how long Moby Dick is. I read the Cliff Notes, but the. Honestly. I think some of the reason for that dynamic is he said, "Well, I'm only going to testify to stuff in the report." So, in order to have him not just say, "Well, that's beyond the scope of the report," they wanted to cite chapter and verse where it was in the report to justify the question. And I do think that some of the parameters that were put on, and by the way, parameters not only by Robert Mueller, but apparently parameters put on by Attorney General Barr when there were instructions given to be really circumspect, to be really careful about tiptoeing anywhere beyond the four corners of the report. So I think there were several dynamics going on. And I think when the story is told, some of those parameters end up adding to the story of what is might be the most so far successful cover-up in American political history. Yes, and then it's going to be too late for us when that happens, because this election is coming up, and there's no barriers to cyberspace. There's, yeah. The country is in jeopardy, and I'm very fatalistic about this, because I live in next to the state of Pennsylvania and around this area. is very Trumpville. You can't even speak out loud about your ideas yeah. about the government. It's It's just... Well, I hope, Mary, I hope two things. First of all, I appreciate it, but I hope two things. One, I hope you will speak. You'd be surprised, and this is a term I learned from Hartman listeners. I don't know they came up with it. I suspect somebody came up with it. But the blue dots, the blue dots in red seas. There's more of you than we think. And all those places that look like red America, that's purple America. It's 60-40, maybe 65-35. It ain't 80-20. And even if it were 80-20, that means one out of five people next to you is feeling similar to you. So don't be quiet. Don't fail to speak. And the other is, I appreciate, I empathize with the fatalism. I look at the Electoral College map and how it doesn't map to the population. But we've got to have hope. Because hope yields activity. Fear yields inactivity. And activity is what we need. Thanks for the call. And let's all be active. Two things at least I want to say. One, about fear. What we understand about fear is it makes us freeze. And this, and I'm not equating the two things. I'm be very careful. I'm not equating the two things. I'm not there saying they're the same. But there is still a lesson there. That if you read your Hannah Arendt, if you read your Origins of Totalitarianism, you understand the power of the carrot and stick, the power of fear, the power of keeping people away from the public thing. If you read your psychology today, you understand the impact that fear can have and typically does have in making people freeze. Fear is not an activity, fear is not an emotion rather, that helps with proactive action. It shrinks your capillaries, it gets your blood moving away from your extremities, it takes blood flow away from your frontal lobes, it makes you less creative, it makes you less loving. It makes you less able to innovate on behalf of your neighbors. It makes it less likely that you're going to help your neighbors. That fear is a strategy, and it's not a strategy new to this president. And the worst tyrants in history have understood this strategy, either explicitly or implicitly. So amen. And second is therefore, we got to breathe. We got to scan the room. We've got to make sure that we appreciate the beauty, as our previous caller said, of the Allegheny of Allegheny Park. 
We've got to make sure that we appreciate the wonderful things that happen in our lives and then have that fuel us to persist. Not just resist, but to persist, to keep going. And where do we keep going? It ain't all about the presidential election. Now, we are going to cover the Mueller report. We're going to cover the Mueller testimony, committed to doing that. And we're going to be covering the big stuff that's happening around the country, which I think goes well beyond And In fact, where people should be spending their time goes vastly beyond, mostly beyond the presidential race. Each of y'all can have some impact on a presidential race. You can vote. You can get your neighbors to vote. You can participate in the discussion. You can participate in the discussion here. But if you flipped, I think it's two seats in the Texas state legislature, you could have an impact on Congress for a decade. And flipping two seats in the state legislature is a lot different than trying to flip an entire state in a presidential election, maybe a state you don't live in. Spending an extra few thousand dollars in a state senate race instead of deciding to be a billionaire and running for president. Think about the impact you could have on transforming local elections around the country. If you went out and fought for what you just did, went make sure that every blue state that there is was pushing for voter access. If you're in a state like Michigan, which is so gerrymandered, so gerrymandered that it's locked up, that even though it's a purple state, it's acting like a red state, and you go and you take to the ballot, you go straight to the ballot and make sure that you pass a new system for drawing those districts in a purple state like that that's pretending to be a red state because of falsely drawn districts, you can transform the state of Michigan. There are pro-democracy moves that can happen all over the country. If you live in a city, you can push for that city to enact publicly financed elections to make sure that the big developers, the large corporations don't control politicians at the local level. Why does that matter? Not only so your city is better, not only so that governance in your city resembles democracy, but also because you then start building the kind of leader that is more accountable to human beings than they are to great capital. Making sure we have a new generation of leaders of whatever age that is committed to democracy. And also to make sure that resources are spent not only on, you know, blue on blue fights within urban areas, let public dollars fund that, but make sure that those uh, fundraising, national fundraising dollars can be focused on things like say, legislative elections to make sure that we can transform the map in the country so that it resembles democracy. So we don't have an anti-majoritarian system, we have a pro-majoritarian system. What we've got to do is get away just from fear and towards hope and translate that hope into action and actual and impact. Not about the stuff we can't control merely, but also about some of the stuff we can. We're going to be right back. This is Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jefferson Smith. Honored to be with you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Jefferson Smith. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We are covering the Mueller report, the Mueller testimony, but some interesting dynamics and at least one really important moment. We want to play that moment, if only so that you share it with friends and other people share it with friends. This is an enormous thing. It's distracted by so much noise in the world, and it can be hard. The report can be confusing. Setting that aside for just one moment, let's hear this clip. This is not very confusing. Was there sufficient evidence to convict President Trump or anyone else with obstruction of justice? We did not make that calculation. How could you not have made the calculation because with the regulation? The OLC opinion, the OLC opinion, Office of Legal Counsel, indicates that we cannot indict a sitting president. So one of the tools that a prosecutor would use is not there. Could you charge the president with a crime after he left office? Yes. 
You believe that you could charge the president of the United States with obstruction of justice after he left office? Yes, but the OLC opinion says that the prosecutor cannot bring a charge against the sitting president. Nonetheless, it can continue the investigation to see if there are any other persons who might be drawn into the conspiracy. Okay, I hope you caught that. You could charge this president after he leaves office with obstruction of justice. And the reason they did not is because of the OLC opinion, an opinion of policy, not a law or constitutional principle, that a sitting president will not be, by this particular Department of Justice, indicted during their term of service, during their term of office. That is an enormous moment in American democracy for some of the questioners who include and recognize the political dynamic here. You've got 90 plus Democrats who said, yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready to vote for articles of impeachment. I'm ready to at least begin impeachment proceedings. And it is such a challenging political question about whether to bring impeachment proceedings. I try not to throw too many stones to people who land on different sides who think this president shouldn't be above the law, but who recognize that the Senate has already made up their mind. At least Mitch McConnell has made up his mind because he's not making the decision based on facts or rule of law. That may seem a little bit too critical, but that is my analysis. That is my conclusion. And therefore, is it worth it? But part of the political dynamic and the Elizabeth Warren position is this should not be merely a political question. This should be whether or not you believe these rise to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors and vote for that, yay or nay, or live with the result for the rest of your life, or I suppose, and live with that result for the rest of your life and have to be comfortable with that vote. And so ultimately, it's not merely a political question, but it is also, it includes being a political question. And part of the political question is you have representatives like Debbie McCarcel Powell, who is elected from a swing district in Miami-Dade County. How swing? Well, it was represented by a Republican until just last year. And she won with 50.9% of the vote. At a time when there was a near wave election, I think it's fair to say a wave election for Democrats. And in a wave election for Democrats, she didn't quite get 51%. And she, in her question time, said, there's enough information here to say there should have been charges brought or should be charges brought or there was indictable offense brought with respect to obstruction of justice. And so some of the dynamic is a vote count dynamic. It is whether or not representatives like Debbie McCarcel Powell and the proxy that she offers, other folks who are in challenging districts that, in fact, might have voted for Trump in 2016 and have constituents who listen to Fox News or watch Fox News and listen to right wing radio. And whether those folks will say, yeah, you know what, it is my duty to at least have there be articles of impeachment. That's one of the big dynamics. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Louise and I have used CBD oil for, geez, it's been a couple of years now, I think, you know, as a pain reliever and an anti-inflammatory. And recently we've discovered New Leaf Naturals CBD oil. We absolutely love it. It's the best we've ever tried. Uh, the company is spelled N-U Leaf Naturals. CBD oil is non-intoxicating, which makes it ideal for people seeking the health benefits of cannabinoid without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. CBD is non-toxic. It has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. New Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the United States. The only ingredient is hemp. 
So the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's N-U-Leafnaturals.com. Uh, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to nuleafnaturals.com for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, nuleafnaturals.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's the Mueller Report. We're reading from page 131. This is under the title of Paul Manafort's Ties to Russia and Ukraine and the subtitle of Oleg Deripaska Consulting Work. In 2017, Deripaska invested through another entity in Pericles Emerging Market Partners, LP, also known as Pericles, an investment fund created by Manafort and former Manafort business partner Richard Davis. The Pericles Fund was established to pursue investments in Eastern Europe. Deripaska was the sole investor. Gates stated in interviews with the office that the venture led to a deterioration of the relationship between Manafort and Deripaska. In particular, when the fund failed, litigation between Manafort and Deripaska ensued. Gates stated that by 2009, Manafort's business relationship with Deripaska had, quote, dried up. According to Gates, various interactions with Deripaska and his intermediator Aries over the past few years have involved trying to resolve the legal dispute. As described below in 2016, Manafort, Gates, Kalimnik, and others engaged in efforts to revive the Deripaska relationship and resolve the litigation political consulting work. Through Deripaska, Manafort was introduced to Ronit Akhmenatov, a Ukrainian oligarch who hired Manafort as a political consultant. In 2005, Akhmenatov hired Manafort to engage in political work supporting the Party of Regions, a political party in Ukraine that was generally understood to align with Russia. Manafort assisted the Party of Regions in regaining power, and its candidate, Viktor Yanukovych, won the presidency in 2010. Manafort became a close and trusted political advisor to Yanukovych during his time as president of Ukraine. Yanukovych served in that role until 2014 when he fled to Russia amidst popular protests. Konstantin Kalimnik. Kalimnik is a Russian national who has lived in both Russia and Ukraine and was a longtime Manafort employee. Kalimnik had direct and close access to Yanukovych and his senior entourage, and he facilitated communications between Manafort and his clients, including Yanukovych and multiple Ukrainian oligarchs. Kalimnik also maintained a relationship with Deripaska's deputy, Viktor Boyarkin, a Russian national who previously served in the defense attache office of the Russian embassy to the United States. Manafort told the Mueller prosecutor's office that he did not believe Kalimnik was working as a Russian spy. The FBI, however, assesses that Kalimnik has ties to Russian intelligence. Several pieces of the office's evidence, including witness interviews and emails obtained through court-authorized search warrants, support that assessment. And then there's a series of bullet points here. One, Kalimnik was born on April 27, 1970, in Oblast, then of the Soviet Union, and attended the Military Institute of the Ministry of Defense from 87 till 1992. Sam Patton, a business partner to Kalimnik, stated that Kalimnik told him he was a translator in the Russian army for seven years and that he later worked in the Russian armament industry selling arms and military equipment. U.S. government visa records, another bullet point, revealed that Kalimnik obtained a visa to travel to the United States with a Russian diplomatic passport in 1997, another bullet. Kalimnik worked with the International Republican Institute's IRI Moscow office, where he did translation work and generally office management from 1998 to 2005. While another official recalled the incident differently, 
One former associate of Kalimnik's at IRI told the FBI that Kalimnik was fired from his post because his links to Russian intelligence were too strong. That same individual stated that it was well known at IRI that Kalimnik had links to the Russian government. Another bullet. Jonathan Hawker, a British national who is a public relations consultant at FTI Consulting, worked with DMI on a public relations campaign for Yanukovych. After Hawker's work for DMI ended, Kalimnik contacted Hawker about working for a Russian government entity on a public relations project that would promote, in Western and Ukrainian media, Russia's position on its 2014 invasion of Crimea. In the last bullet point, Gates suspected that Kalimnik was a spy, a view that he shared with Manafort, Hawker, and Alexander Vanderswan, an attorney who had worked with DMI on a report for the Ukrainian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The next paragraph has been deleted by Bill Barr. B. Contacts during Paul Manafort's time with the Trump campaign. A subset. Paul Manafort joins the campaign. Manafort served on the Trump campaign from late March to August 19, 2016. On March 29, 2016, the campaign announced that Manafort would serve as the campaign's convention manager. On May 19, 2016, Manafort was promoted to campaign chairman and chief strategist, and Gates, who had been assisting Manafort on the campaign, was appointed deputy campaign chairman. Thomas Barack and Roger Stone both recommended Manafort to candidate Trump. In early 2016, at Manafort's request, Barack suggested to Trump that Manafort join the campaign to manage the Republican convention. Stone had worked with Manafort from approximately 1980 until the mid-1990s through various consulting and lobbying firms. Manafort met Trump in 1982 when Trump hired the black Manafort, Stone, and Kelly lobbying firm. Over the years, Manafort saw Trump at political and social events in New York City and at Stone's wedding, and Trump requested VIP status at the 1998-1996 Republican conventions worked by Manafort. That's interesting. 1988 convention and 96 Republican conventions Manafort ran. It's the Mueller Report. And we're back. You're listening to Harmer Show. Tom Hartman is away for right now. I'm Jefferson Smith. I'm sitting in. I'm honored to be here. Thanks so much. Why don't we take while we have a moment some calls? We've got Barbara from Sun City, Arizona. Go ahead, Barbara. Hi. Basically, what I'm trying to, I got this yesterday that if Mueller doesn't testify to the parts of the report that are redacted by Barr in order to cover Trump's crimes, then it's obstruction of justice, protecting obstruction of justice by committing obstruction of justice. It's like they're all covering for each other and they're all obstructing justice. And it's so wrong, and we need somebody like the Pentagon Papers to come and take the whole unredacted thing and, you know, throw it into the Washington Post and let everybody see what really happened. And we know what really happened, you know, the Magnitsky, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, sanctions on Russia, why they did it, what's been going on for years. Appreciate the call, Barbara. Let's take a call from Stan from Champaign, Illinois, WCPT. Go ahead. Yes, thanks. If Trump is reelected next year, the statute of limitations is going to run on almost all of the charges that he could be prosecuted for when he's not president. So we have to have impeachment. 
And if Nancy Pelosi has any ability to get her caucus to do what she wants, she should be able to say impeach and they'll all follow her. No, there is, and thanks, Stan, for the call. There is a real risk, and I want to respond also to Barbara's call. I want to get to as many of your calls as we can, but there is a real risk that if we can't sufficiently trust that our elections will be majoritarian, that the person who ends up sitting in the White House is not supported by a majority of the American people, or even the majority of the votes cast, or even the plurality of the votes cast, they can come in second and sit in the White House. And if that can happen in an era of unlimited secret money, in an era of voter suppression, in an era of partisan gerrymandering and uh, an electoral college that doesn't reflect the overall will of the overall American people. And if all of that is happening, there is a real possibility that we should be stealing ourselves towards. And this is why my own view is that Save Democracy it ain't about one president. It ain't about one Congress. It is and all of our attention shouldn't be focused there. In fact, state legislative races that could impact the overall structure of Congress for the coming decade. We've got to be playing a long game, a long pro-democracy game, not merely with an eye to a single election or a single president. Because there is a real risk, as you said, that accountability for this president will mean, I don't know, some people saying mean things in history books and other loyalist folks saying nice things about him in history, I don't know, talk radio. Let's go to J.A. watching us on Free Speech TV from Portland, not Oregon, but Maine. How you doing? Hey, I love you. I love Tom. And I watch you pretty persistently or try to as much as possible. But we appreciate to, it. I mean, it actually was MSNBC, and I think her name's Nicole Wallace, which I like her show a lot, but she kind of was just getting down on Mueller on how he wasn't putting on a good enough show, basically, which I guess stems back to the guy's a Marine, been through the Vietnam War, and who knows what else, to be honest. So what do they expect from him other than to stick to kind of honor i honestly feel like he's still way more educated than who's sitting in the oval office so break down to appreciate you guys letting me get on the air and and you think Mueller's doing a good job i think he's doing exactly what everybody should expect from him basically yeah. i think they're just you know i heard him talk about it was coming through pages of a 400 page report which the guy you know honestly it seems like he's just annoyed with people not kind of being more aware of what he already has told everybody, basically, yeah. and like, we're going to go through this again. So anyway, just disappointed that they're trying to turn it into more Trump drama than sticking to, like, pick out this guy did this and was taught, you know, the people that have been committed to crimes that were tied in the inner circle, basically, of the campaign, basically, which yeah. I know you're well aware of, and that's where I get most of my information from is you guys. So anyway, I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Jay. Appreciate it. Let me offer some thoughts on Mueller. So I am seeing some critique. In fact, we had a caller who said, oh, it looks like somebody with Alzheimer's, looks like somebody who doesn't have all his faculties, hurting his reputation. I don't share that critique. I think it is true that he is not performing like a Hollywood actor, nor is he performing as someone who's trying to take down a president. This is a guy who is a Republican. He is an institutionalist. He is, in his other career, a corporate lawyer who represents some of the nation's wealthiest individuals and companies. Middle-class people can't afford him. Small businesses can't afford him. When he investigated the NFL, he let them off the hook, despite some pretty clear evidence that maybe they should be held accountable for something. That was in his private practice, and he's going back to his private practice. We'll talk about Mueller and what we're learning, but the key thing is the facts.
there's been some commentary about Mueller himself. And I've offered some of my thoughts about him, but I think one of the biggest mistakes in this fog of war, as we look on how history might turn on a trifle, let me offer one of those trifles. And that is it being called the Mueller investigation. That it was being called the Mueller report. So when Mueller was done with it, well, I guess the investigation is over and the report is over. And that the focus goes on him and how good a job he does and who he is. Because, well, the investigation is the Mueller investigation. It's not the Mueller investigation. It's a Trump investigation. It's a corruption investigation. It's an obstruction of justice investigation. It's a coordination with a foreign power investigation. It's an investigation on an attack on American elections. Watergate wasn't named after the people who were invested. It wasn't about Mr. Water and Mr. Gate. It was about what happened. It was an investigation about the crime. One of the biggest mistakes that's been made by the news media in general, and I don't exempt myself, is calling this from the beginning the Mueller investigation, the Mueller report, instead of putting the attention where the attention needed to be on the matter of the investigation, on whether or not crimes were committed, whether or not there were more than just minor misdemeanors that were committed. Let's take Bob, Lakewood, New York. Go ahead. Hey, thanks for taking my call, Jeff. Thanks for calling. Appreciate it. I like it when you're on the show. You're a good uh, change up from Tom, and I'm glad to hope Tom's enjoying his day. Okay, so my question is, how does a memo in the DOJ supersede our Constitution? All right, I'll take that. Is that the sum of your question? I don't, I'll make sure I don't cut you off. Yeah, that's it, and I'll take it off the air. Thank okay, you. Okay, great. Thanks, Bob. It doesn't supersede it. It attempts to, if not interpret it, at least to operate atop it. The rationale for not indicting a sitting president is imagine a rogue U.S. attorney who said, I don't like this president. I'm going to indict him for something. So they have to spend all of their time responding to that indictment and not leading the country. So the policy view is that, well, let's wait. And what the Constitution says and what Mueller's report does say, what Mueller has said in his public statements, however few they might be, that there is a remedy, that there is a process the Constitution does provide for. And in fact, they would argue, the people who interpret the OLC opinion that way, or interpret, uh, who agree with the OLC's interpretation of executive privilege and executive protection from indictment, they would argue, oh, this is the exception that proves the rule. The exception that proves the rule is usually used wrong. Usually people use it as like, oh, well, this thing isn't true, but usually another thing is true, therefore that's the exception. No, the exception that proves the rule is this sort of thing. They say, well, because the Constitution offers a path for accountability, and it names the path for accountability as impeachment. The fact that it does not say that, well, there can just be a regular indictment of a president, the fact that is accepted from what the Constitution does say, therefore suggests that the Constitution doesn't provide for, that policy should not provide for other pathways of accountability. It says impeachment, it doesn't say something else. If it meant other stuff, it would say that other stuff. It says impeachment. Now, others would say, no, just the fact that it offers impeachment, you could use the exception proves the rule on a flip. He said, no, it doesn't say the president is above the law and the president should be able to avoid indictment. If it meant that, it would have said that. That's why there is this debate. That's why during both Watergate and during the Clinton investigation, there were differing opinions, differing written opinions on whether or not 
a sitting president could be subject to indictment because of that different ability to argue the fact that the Constitution is silent about whether or not a president can be indicted. What Mueller did was side with the Barr interpretation, the Department of Justice current interpretation, that the fact that the Constitution doesn't lay out indictment itself, it doesn't lay out that you're free of indictment, it doesn't say you're above the law, that's why I think that's a strong argument, but the fact that it doesn't lay out indictment, but does lay out a process for impeachment, suggests that impeachment is the way you hold a president, a sitting president, accountable. And Mueller has made that plain, that that's the... Now, in a world where, in fact, in a world before political parties, which is what we had when the Constitution was ratified, in a world where political parties weren't the primary, or at least when the Constitution was being argued upon when we fought the revolution, before political parties, before lobbyists, before Citizens United, before unlimited secret money, before the distortion that's happening in American democracy, one could say, oh, well, that is accountability. It's a, diff- it's a check and balance because it's a different branch of government, and therefore Congress can hold the president accountable. What we recognize is right now the odds that this Republican Senate will hold any Republican president accountable, including a president who, I don't know, went to Manhattan in the middle of Times Square and shot somebody? Would they hold him accountable for that? Is something that I don't know that we can expect. And therefore, the tools of accountability that the framers thought would exist, right now, it's not clear that they exist. Which I think lays a policy argument in favor of the caller that we got and the question from Quigley, which is, well, wait a minute. If the president is reelected and the statute of limitations on these crimes runs and you have a Republican Senate, doesn't that mean that, in fact, a president could be above the law? The reason, one of the reasons that's so important is because there is a debate right now happening within the U.S. Congress. It's happening within the households and living rooms and switchboards, if they still use switchboards, and Twitter feeds of every Democratic member of the Congress. And that is whether or not to support articles of impeachment. That's not the same as impeachment happening. There's a Senate that exists. And in each of them are saying, well, should I do this? How would I justify it? And the reason they keep going on to, well, is any president above the law? That's not just for us. That's for members of Congress to understand if we have that iron triangle of protection for a president who is committing crimes, then maybe you have to use the only pathway there is, which would be impeachment. That's what's at stake. You know, age works its, um, I was going to say magic, but (laughs) whatever you want to call it, on all of us. And eventually... There are, there are days when, you know, you look in the mirror and go, I could use a little help. Well, what works is Plexiderm. And I'm not talking about days or weeks to work. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates under eye bags and wrinkles from view in minutes. Did you hear that? In minutes. The science behind Plexiderm is incredible with clinical studies to back it up. If you look older and tired because of crow's feet, wrinkles, or under eye bags, you can look younger in just minutes with Plexiderm. See it for yourself. Watch a real video with real people and see how fast crow's feet, wrinkles, and under eye bags disappear. Those results are backed up by Plexiderm's 30-day satisfaction guarantee. Go to TryPlexiderm.com and use the coupon code TOM, T-H-O-M, for my discount. That's TryPlexiderm.com with the code TOM, T-H-O-M, or call one 800 685-1292 and mention Tom. I'm Jefferson Smith. This is the Tom Hartman Show. Right now on the line, we've got Bob Nay, Talk Media News, talkmedianews.com, friend of the show. Bob Nay, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, I'm grateful to be on the show. Thank you. What's going on in the world that we're missing? Well, let me start with the Department of Justice, which has just announced, by the way, this was record speed, 
that it won't prosecute the Attorney General or uh, Barr or the Commerce Secretary uh, Ross, will not prosecute them after the House voted earlier this month to hold them in criminal contempt. And uh, this was announced by the Deputy Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen. And he wrote a letter to the Speaker and described the Department's, quote, longstanding position to not prosecute an official for contempt of Congress for declining to provide information subject to a presidential assertion of executive privilege, which the President can basically do for almost anybody. And the reason I also wanted to mention this story, because something I haven't found in some additional stories, is the fact that the Senate itself operates under a different rule, by the way, when it comes to the contempt. Obviously, Jefferson, as you know, if they're not going to enforce contempt of Congress, the Justice Department, and they've already very swiftly declined this because the Holder case under Obama and Harriet Meyer's case under George Bush took six years to decide the contempt issue. Six years. So this was what? This has been a month or two. Now, the Senate has a rule... And the Senate can, no matter what the Justice Department does, the Senate and its committees, by an internal rule, are authorized to bring a lawsuit under a federal statute. That lawsuit would be in the federal district court in Washington, D.C. Now, the House doesn't have a rule like that. But the federal district court in Washington has decided if the House wants to, they can nevertheless authorize its committees to bring a civil lawsuit that's similar for enforcement of a subpoena. And the reason I raise this, obviously, this administration is going to deny and squash and quash and everything else under the sun, every single contempt motion that's brought. So the House may, at some point in time, I would assume, want to also go through and authorize itself. It can change its rules in a heartbeat and authorize itself to be able to go after the people that won't come in to talk to the Congress. Obviously, Don McGahn would be, I assume, on everybody's Council of the President on everybody's list to get there. So let's back and, up just uh, a second. Let's back up just a second. It's so important. And it also gets back to something we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Question synonymous to, why won't the Democrats be more aggressive with blank? <laughs> and one of the challenges is what you just offered, that mm-hmm. one way they can be aggressive is by requiring testimony. And if somebody doesn't testify, they can issue a subpoena and they can Correct. be under contempt of Congress for not doing it. But it is up to the executive branch, apparently, to enforce the law. And if the executive branch decides not to enforce the law, what do we do? And you're saying that the alternative is to go to a different court to get some other uh, other constable to enforce a, a civil requirement? Run through that again very quickly. Yes. And again, the Senate has had this rule for quite a while. So just for clarification, the Senate and its committees today can say, instead of going in contempt of Congress and going through the Attorney General, the Senate and its committees are authorized. They can bring a lawsuit under a federal statute, a civil lawsuit, under a federal statute in the district court in Washington, D.C., District of Columbia. They can bring it. So they will enter into the suit. It's just another means to bypass, you know, obviously if you have a hostile attorney general, then this would be a means to do it. The House does not have such a rule. But the court has already made a statement that nevertheless, if the House were to authorize something like this, they could go through the same process as the Senate. Now, you're not going to see the Senate doing this because it's controlled by Mitch McConnell. Right. Uh, So the House may... Yeah, that's very helpful. This is sort of sitting there, Jefferson. I'm not sure why the House had, or if they thought this through or not, but... 
you know, this is another tactic to come at another way at this administration, which is obviously <clears throat> in record time killing these motions to have some people come testify before the House. It's very helpful. We want to cover that more. You want to make sure we cover something else. I'm just wondering, and I'm, I'm not recalling when I was there that we ever had a situation like that, but right. I was surfing the rules, and if the Senate can do it, the House can do it, and the House is obviously the Democratic-controlled portion, because the Senate's not going to do any of that. Because it's not, it's not a statute that needs to be passed, it's a rule. So that means the majority, that they could just pass it as a rule. It would apply only, the ambit of passing that rule will be fully within the House, that's helpful. Anything else you want to make sure we cover? Well, just the fact that the Senate Republicans have blocked two uh, election security bills. Yeah, they we're did just it, talking uh, about it based on federalizing elections, which is absolutely uh, not true. It would not federalize anything at all. Well, Bob Ney, we appreciate you calling as always. All right, folks, I'm Jefferson Smith. Let's do a speed round. Y'all been waiting patiently. Everybody, let's try to truncate it. And then I promise I'll respond to the questions and the calls for impeachment. Let's start with Ivan from Bartlett, Illinois. Speed round. Hey, Jeff. The thing that stood out to me yesterday, it's a thorn in the side of the GOP that the Steele dossier has been proven correct insofar as the Russians hated Hillary and helped Trump win. That is a fact. And how many times did they try to discredit the Steele dossier? They brought it up over and over again. It was like their favorite line. Uh, Bob from Folsom, California, you're on the air. Speed round. I met some black people that uh, actually voted for Trump, and they have a common thread, which the white people who voted for Trump, they are 81% total, I think, and they have a common thread. They're evangelicals. And my comment is, once you become a fundamentalist, you know, like Falwell, Dobson, Swaggart, those guys, you lose the ability to reason for yourself. And that's all I have to say. Appreciate the call so much. Laura from Linwood, Washington. You're on the air. You got another call there, but you're on the air with the Tom Hartman Show if you want to use the speed round. This is Michael, not Laura. Oh, Michael. Well, maybe maybe Laura's calling you. <laughs> the thing is that after what we saw yesterday, it is imperative to go forth with impeachment because there's a lot of crimes here. And if you cannot indict a sitting president, which is a just a policy. It's not a law. So there's no law forbidding that. I don't know what other remedy to go for. You, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I, I, I hear, are I, still trying to hack into our elections, and we got to take action and hold these Senate Republicans accountable, too. I hear you loud and clear, Michael. Now we're going to try going to Laura from Linwood, Washington, who might have been just calling Michael. I don't know. This is Laura from Linwood, Washington. Hello, Laura. There's so many fires to put out, it makes me crazy. And my mother was very political, and I thank her for that, because she's taught me to listen and think about what I can do to make this world better. And we have two main targets. One, the presidency, but I think our biggest target, because I think the presidency is going to get taken care of. I give money to people that are running, and I think, gee, you know, I can wait on that because when we do pick the one, I'm going to vote for a Democrat. But the, the, the Senate is what is just destroying us. And 
I want to know where can I send the $27 that I usually send to Bernie to help. If you got 27 bucks, I'll go you one better, or at least one below, is I would focus on state legislative races because this is the most important, This the, one could argue the most important history of the country, most important set of state legislative elections in the history of the country, right. at the very least in, less, in the next decade, because after this, there will be a census, and after that, we'll be redistricting, and it'll be legislatures who, plus some governors, plus some secretaries of state, who draw those lines. I'll also tweet something out about key Senate races and key legislative races, but I'm about to violate speed round. So let me get to Brian. Brian, go ahead. Are there impeachable, indictable offenses uh, committed by the president that are not in the Mueller report? In other words, the emoluments clauses. The answer to the question is almost certainly if there were a Senate who would take it up. You heard it. Well, that's beyond my purview. Any number of financial crimes committed by this president were not covered by the Mueller report. But I'll offer that thought in my last one minute. But Tracy, you get to be the last in the speed round. Tracy from White Crystal Beach, Maryland. Yes, hi. You just pointed out the legislative races. I was going to say that, so I won't comment. I'll look for your great information coming up. There's 20 Senate races or seats up for grabs and three people retiring in the GOP. So that should be the focus. And the other, and I'll take this offline, but the other thing I think, uh, other than the impeachment process, and I know that the um, Intelligence Committee is still gathering information. I don't think there should be a rush to judgment on that. But um, I do think that the focus should be on shoring up the voter registration and anything having to do with voting. So I'll take your comment offline. Uh, my, my comment is that Tracy's a genius and everybody should listen to Tracy and everything she ever says for the rest of her life. I totally agree with everything you just said and that's, what I have, that's my response. We're about to wrap. Let me say this. First of all, thank you. I'll be back tomorrow. We'll offer some of my thoughts about not only the coming presidential election, but maybe more importantly, the elections where I think we can have the biggest impact and the biggest impact for the long game. We had a caller earlier who said, who likened to Rocky and said that, well, we've got to do the knockout punch of impeachment. Didn't get to a clip that we'll try to play tomorrow about one member of Congress who essentially said, well, I want to make sure that there really is a knockout punch. She didn't use that word. I want to make sure, I want to wait until we don't just get them on some little thing, we get them on the full thing. So I'm going to wait until we have the strongest possible case because we only have one chance. She took the knockout blow approach. I view this a little bit more like trench warfare. I think that this, I'd like to think of it as a building pursuit, but regardless, I see it as a long game. And to me, I see impeachment through that lens. To me, the best argument in favor of impeachment is morality, is what's right. It's not a political argument, it's not a warfare argument, it's not a sport or a game argument, but is what is the definition of a high crime misdemeanor? That to me is how the question should be answered. Tomorrow, let's talk about the fight. Let's talk about what we have to build. My last thought is you're priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. With you, we got a chance. Thank you so much for giving me and giving this community some of your time. We'll share some more of it tomorrow. I'm Jefferson Smith, and thank you, democracy. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.